Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great land of ours is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Hi, Rich. It's a happy day because we have officially entered the second half of 2020, which means I expect the reign of frogs to happen anytime soon. We are halfway there, and indeed, we are living on a prayer. So let's get it started with a little something we like to call news or not. This is where maybe just too much news or, you know, we're not sure if it's going to make the cut for a full discussion, but I want Tom's take on it and to find out how this qualifies as news. This first item here, certainly newsworthy. I want it from the IT perspective, though, and I want to set this up properly. Uh, We just uh, received word uh, this week that the U.S. is, in fact, uh, issuing an executive order. The president issued an executive order. That's where the executive is. Uh, on June 22nd, suspending new visas, including H-1B visas granted for specialty fields. Technology Review notes this may have a, a substantial impact on U.S. AI researchers as there is not enough domestic candidates. Currently, 60% of AI researchers in the U.S. receive their undergraduate degrees outside of the U.S. 35% of H-1B visa holders have an AI-related degree, just to give you some kind of scale of, of what kind of proportion those are. Canada, the UK, France, and Australia have no visa caps for AI workers. Uh, The Canadian government, in fact, has posted billboards in Silicon Valley encouraging those with visa problems to apply for work in Canada. So, Tom, from this AI perspective here, news or not? News. And here's why. Um, I'm going to take off my political hat, which looks an awful lot like the Mad Hatter's hat. Um, (laughs) Here's all you need to know. We just proved over the last five months, four months, that you can do jobs from anywhere. We also know that people love to hire the lowest cost asset for a job. And now we don't have to bring them to the U.S. So the thought process was, oh, well, if we deny all H-1B visas or severely restrict them, then people in the U.S. will hire local U.S. workers to do these jobs. This is also known in the industry as crap, because what they're actually going to do is hire the people they were going to hire anyway in wherever they're from. And we all know that most H-1B visas come from India and China and parts of the East. They're going to be there doing the work. Um, This is actually not going to help at all. But props to the U.S. government for once again proving that they couldn't find their butt with both hands, a GPS and a guide. Yeah. And, you know, and I've, I set this up from the enterprise perspective because certainly there is, um, you know, a substantial human cost in terms of, you know, people that uh, either are going to have visas renewed uh, or, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, maybe making plans to come to the U.S. and stuff like that. Certainly don't want to downplay that in any way, but definitely want your take on just that enterprise angle. So thank you, Tom. Uh, next up, Password Manager 1Password introduced domain breach reports for 1Password teams and business customers. This uses information from Have I Been Pwned's password breach database to identify employees employee accounts that have been compromised, alert impacted users, and urge them to create new passwords. Hooking up with Have I Been Pwned for one password? News or not here, Tom? It's news just because we realize now that all of this stuff is connected. They've been doing this for a while where they've been saying, hey, we've noticed that this is actually a compromised credential. You need to stop using it. Uh, This should finally hammer home to people that you cannot reuse passwords everywhere. There's a little button, generate passwords. The safest password is the one you don't even know. 
are we surprised that we haven't seen this uh, integrated more on a system level? Like, I understand, like, have I been pwned? Maybe for whatever reason, you don't, you know, I, I don't even want to say don't want to trust it. It's it, by all accounts, you know, Troy Hunt, very reputable security researcher. Why aren't we seeing companies like Microsoft just go ahead, like, hey, plug in all your stuff? We'll let you, like, isn't that in, in any I, like company's best interest? It's in every company's best interest, but they don't want to admit that this is a problem. Also, I'm sure that that Troy probably um, would like some licensing uh, for the database. And I'm not I'm not decrying the man because God knows he's doing yeoman's work. Um, so toss him a few bucks if you can, because that thing has saved my bacon on more than one occasion. Yeah, definitely. Uh, next up here, uh, interesting from the US FCC, they have formally declared Huawei and ZTE as national security threats after tacitly calling them that for several years. This distinction now bars US telecom companies from using federal funds to buy equipment from them. The FCC has banned the two had already banned the two companies from receiving money from the Universal Services Fund back in November. That's a pool of like nine billion dollars that telecoms can use to build out infrastructure uh, kind of for those last mile in rural area problems. And now says the challenge is getting the funding to replace existing telecom equipment in the wild. Uh, news or not here, Tom? This is news, but just because this is another part of the gamesmanship that the U.S. and China are currently playing. So here's ultimately what the problem boils down to in a short nutshell. They can be national security risks, and this can still be the wrong decision. I can't reliably say that ZTE and Huawei are not compromised by the Chinese government. That remains to be seen. But the U.S. government just outright banning two telecom companies from doing business in the U.S. is going to cause problems because guess what? There's every possibility that the Chinese government can go, well, you know what? Cisco, Arista, Juniper can't do business in China now. Sorry. Yeah, uh, it's these it's these knock on effects. And like you said, it, it's a it's a game of chess and, uh, you know, uh, ZTE and Huawei. I, I mean, again, they're giant corporations. I don't feel bad for them, but they are definitely being used uh, uh, in this chess match uh, to to, you know, to swing some hammers um, and, and, you know. Uh, proxy trade wars are my favorite kind of wars. Uh, next up here, uh, Salesforce launched a beta of Salesforce Anywhere that brings together chat, alerts, comments, and video into its CRM suite in a unified view. The idea here is to allow you to get more done in Salesforce with less hopping between apps. At least that's how they're positioning it. Uh, instead of, you know, like avoiding things like awkward screen sharing and allowing more seamless collaboration, just kind of letting you view the same screen and interact with it in the same app. Uh, given how many organizations, though, live with their comms mostly already in Salesforce, you know, I mean, Tom, we're, we're no exception there. It feels like this maybe is a shot across the bow with something like Slack. News or not here, Tom? This is absolutely Salesforce trying to get people to stay out of Slack. I don't know how well it's going to work because just because you make the number one CRM app in the world does not mean you are good at all of the things. Um, and I already spend enough time in Salesforce as it is. I don't want to live there. I mean, I when I when I did this back in the day, I lived in Siebel which was like, you know, one of the original CRM apps back in 2002. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just sucking the will to live. And that was without chat functions and all this other stuff. So I, I, I don't know. Salesforce must obviously be feeling a little bit of a pinch from from Slack and Teams. Well, mostly Slack, uh, because they wouldn't have done this if they didn't. But I honestly don't know what they're thinking. I feel like this is them making a product out of something that people were already trying to like hack away into doing anyway. And they're like, we might as well like 
charge a service, you know, like, like officially yeah. support this, let people you because I'm sure there's all sorts of Salesforce integrations that you can have in Slack so that you get notifications in there and why push people to another app when you can, I guess, roll it in as one. It's an interesting move. Uh, we will see if people loves them some CRM uh, enough to keep using it. Next up here, the California Consumer Privacy Act, or CCPA, went into effect on January 1st with the state offering a six-month grace period before actually enforcing it. Uh, you still had to follow the law. They just wouldn't do anything about it. The disruption from the COVID-19 pandemic, many industry groups had been asking the state to extend that grace period, but California Attorney General Javier Becerra said that the law would start going into uh, enforcement starting today. The law still requires consumers to submit privacy complaints, i.e. the government isn't going out looking for them, uh, and the state will send 30-day warnings to companies to fix issues before starting to uh, issue fines and other penalties. Tom, news or not? This is news. CCPA has been on the horizon for, well, the last nine months. I remember a lot of people talking about it at RSA this year. Uh, Ultimately, here's the thing. We're going to start seeing a lot more notifications of breaches. We're going to see a lot more lawsuits being filed to challenge this because now there's teeth in it. Um, Remember how bad GDPR was whenever it came out? And I say bad, bad from the perspective of people doing dumb stuff they weren't supposed to. Um, I can't wait for this, to be honest with you. I am super excited to finally have people holding these people, the, the company's feet to the fire about this. So bravo to the attorney general for California for going, nope, you got to deal with it. And finally, here on News or Not, the Linux Foundation-backed Confidential Computing Consortium announced a few new big-name members, including Facebook, NVIDIA, AMD, and Accenture. They joined the founding members that include Microsoft, ARM, Google, IBM, and Intel, Apple notably not among them, and will work on creating a standard to encrypt data while being processed in memory so that it can't be accessed by other parts of the system. The organization already has built an open-source framework called the Open Enclave Software Development Kit and can be used to create trusted execution environments across computing environments uh, so it can be you know cross-platform. Tom, news or not? Hold on a minute. Confidential Computing Consortium. Facebook is now a member. <laughs> One second. <laughs> No, (laughs) I don't know what they're thinking. Seriously, what I uh, all joking aside, Facebook gets nothing from this other than to say that they've signed on to it, because honestly, truth be told, they don't want their communications end to end encrypted. You know why? Because they can't sell ads in them. So I would argue that this is more about if you look at some of the other players, uh, specifically NVIDIA, Microsoft, Google, uh, uh, I didn't see Amazon in there, I think is the other other big name, obviously, that would need to be in there. I think this is about, okay, we're, Facebook is actually very open about uh, opening the designs up for their data centers and stuff like that. They have an interest in having secure compute for themselves to develop that. And so like, I can totally see their motivation for themselves to have more secure, especially with all of the uh, security problems, uh, you know, those kind of side channel attacks uh, that have been, you know, documented as working against, you know, large data centers and stuff like that. So from that perspective, yes, they should not <laughs> just because they're <laughs> on something called confidential. It does make me roll my eyes as well because it's Facebook. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's interesting to see the names lined up in that uh, uh, in that consortium. So we will see if anything comes of that. Um, Apple kind of going their own way um, with all of their secure enclave and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah. I, it doesn't seem like they need to be in that space yet. Mm hmm. 
All right, first up here in our discussion on Tuesday, Amazon officially launched, speaking of Amazon, their AWS Aeronautics and Satellite Solutions Business Unit, don't do the acronym, which will provide secure, flexible, scalable, and cost-efficient cloud solutions to support government missions and companies advancing space around the world. This is an Amazon's first foray into space, having launched Ground Station in 2018 to link cloud data centers with antenna in space, specifically like satellites, stuff like that. And Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos uh, notably also heads Blue Origin for commercial space flight. This seems to be positioned as an edge computing use case, providing lower latency ML and AL processing to things like satellites versus sending that back down to an earthbound cloud data center. Uh, AWS says some of its initial customers plan to use it for real-time surveillance systems, which could improve the efficiency of far-flung shipping operations and improve weather detection capabilities and not for anything vaguely unsettling. Tom, is space the final frontier for AWS? I don't even know where to start to unpack this. This reminds me when I was a kid and G.I. Joe would ride dinosaurs to fight against Transformers and Strawberry Shortcake riding in a Tonka truck. Like, it's all these different things that I love that I'm trying to mash together. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So here's the thing. Jeff Bezos has an extremely large desire to want to do space because he's a bazillionaire with nothing better to do with his money. Um, so, and yes, I, I'm almost positive that the, uh, what was it? The aeronautics and satellite solutions business unit. Um, that was not an accident because Jeff Bezos is very much an aeronautics and satellite solutions person, a whole, if you will. He seems to have an enthusiasm for that. Yeah. So look at what Tesla is doing, or I'm sorry, SpaceX is doing with their CubeSats. Um, they actually have a very compelling use case for this. Uh, you know, autonomous vehicles, uplinks, uh, that whole mess. This is Jeff Bezos going, well, I can do it too. And trying to make this commercially viable because honestly, this works if Jeff Bezos can get other people to start paying for his rocket eroticism as opposed to other folks. And I just ultimately don't know where the value for this is going to be. Okay, I get it. If you're driving an autonomous car or you have some kind of weird like logistics network built out for driverless semi-trucks, yeah, satellite, whole way. Satellite doesn't make a whole lot of sense if I'm going to run a crappy application in the cloud. I also wonder, just on a like a physical level, you know, um, notably like every satellite rover, anything like that, that's that's going into space always uses like super low spec components because they all have to be super hardened against all sorts of the nasty radiation that's out there once you get outside of the atmosphere. Um, and so I wonder like what even capabilities they could theoretically, or they could not theoretically, that they are putting in this, um, given the need to harden those and what kind of life those would have. Obviously, those are all, you know, things Amazon's going to, has figured out and is going to price into their solutions. And I think it's notable that, you know, clearly they're they're pushing this at a very high level. They're basically saying like, governments, giant megacorps, please use the, the, the cloud that's above the clouds uh, here and we'll go ahead and do that. It does make me wonder, though, that if this, like, I will give Amazon a lot of credit uh, as, uh, uh, you know, as uh, mustache twirling as uh, we can sometimes portray Jeff Bezos. You know, AWS didn't happen by accident, right? Like, they saw, yeah. they, you know, they saw a market, they saw that they could address that. Uh, if if they can get an advantage here, I wonder if there are some other use cases that maybe we're just not seeing yet. You know, again, having that, having that, that edge computing for satellites maybe there are some use cases there that we're just not seeing or, re or ready to see yet, or maybe they're just not there and people will make them up. Yeah. 
I do want to see Rainbow Bright on some uh, on a dinosaur fighting GI Joe, so that'd be cool. All right. Uh, next up here, uh, interesting announcement by Microsoft. They uh, have a number of new initiatives to help uh, displaced or unemployed wor- uh, workers and employers operating in this pandemic economy. They're using their LinkedIn economic graph that aggregates employment data and offering a new portal to show skill gaps in the employment market, showing what skills are in demand and paying the most. And what I think is most important, like that kind of information on a very broad level, maybe not so useful, but localizing that across 180 countries, not just even on a national level, but going a little bit more granular than that. This also includes a list of the 10 most in-demand jobs. Microsoft is launching a free learning path feature to uh, acquire skills for those jobs, and will keep uh, those uh, skill paths for free available through 2021. And Microsoft is lowering their certification exam uh, cost from $100 to $15 through that same time. Given the unique reach and insight of LinkedIn, can Microsoft actually make a dent uh, you know, in this, in this jobs market here, Tom? Hey, Mav, do you, do you have the name of that truck driving school? Truck Masters, I think it is. No, I okay. Bravo to Microsoft for actually using their data to do something useful. Caveat: <laughs> I remember living through the ITT Tech Institute commercials of "Are you dissatisfied with your career? Get a career in information technology." And suddenly, you had the land rush of the world thinking that IT is easy and money, money, money. <sighs> All right, here's my problem with it. You've got people who are needing jobs and who are doing a, you know, they they have a skill set. You know, the world needs ditch diggers too. You can't get people to sign up for things because because let's be fair. Let's look at the skill graph. Let's figure out what this is. People are not going to look at the skill graph and go, that's a job I could do very easily and I'm really good at. You know what they're going to do? They're going to sort by highest salary and go, oh, I can be the uh, CTO or a senior database administrator. What do you know not, about databases? Uh, uh, I, I saw Microsoft Access once on my school computer. Like, like they have to do a better job of matching people's skill sets and limiting the number of jobs that they can see or giving them an option to say, well, you can get to this if you want to invest this much money and you want to do this much training and things like that, because otherwise they're going to wind up in the same boat that we are now, which is there are a whole bunch of mid to slightly lower tier jobs that need to be done and are available and need to be filled. And people are like, I don't want to do that. It doesn't pay $400,000 a year. Yeah. And, and looking at the, those list of uh, top 10 jobs, they had those, uh, uh, I, I was looking through them. Um, they're, they're kind of in, you know, two kind of different classes in terms of like highly skilled and in terms of clearly there is a a large demand for these jobs important jobs that organizations need to get done um but not necessarily ones that you like like a skill up initiative is necessarily going to help so you have things like the number one thing is software developer not necessarily a skill you can get overnight however you know if if you are in if you are someone that is you know uh, maybe you're a recent college graduate you took some at least some classes in college like that could be something like you can get some benefit from that. But then there's other things like a sales representative, um, you know, customer service specialist, digital marketing specialist. I actually think that last one is maybe the most interesting in terms of being able to like, that feels like something we could, you could, you could do some, some uh, training courses online and really kind of uh, be able to be productive in that position. 
Um, but then you have more amorphous things like project manager, um, data analyst, which can mean a whole lot of things. I mean, you know, it has data in the word, so it must be a hotness. Uh, financial analyst, um, <laughs> IT administrator. You know, I, I I don't know how much training you would need to be able to be proficient at that job at any kind of uh, high level. And then there's something like a graphic designer where I feel like that's not I don't, I don't know maybe that is something uh certainly the skills like manipulating photoshop uh you know the the software you could learn being a designer feels like much more uh something that requires a little bit longer term plan so a, an interesting um a mix of positions there in that which i probably speaks to the larger state of the economy and and stuff like that but uh, interesting that microsoft's at least trying yeah all right and finally here uh, another Salesforce-related story, usually we don't talk too much about Salesforce here, but researchers from Salesforce and the University of Virginia published a paper with a new way to mitigate gender bias in data sets used to train AI. Previous attempts to do this have tried to subtract components associated with gender in post-processing after training, so after these AI models have already been built, but is prone to being reintroduced as the model gets used and effectively creates kind of new pathways as it's being used. The researchers instead use double hard debiasing, which transforms semantic and syntactic meanings of words and relationships with other words into a subspace follow along here that can be used to find uh, that can be used to find the dimension that encodes frequency information distracting from those encoded genders. With this information, it can project away the gendered component. Effectively, they can kind of find out uh, the kind of the relationship between the the word and the gender, and uh, like before any training is done, semantically kind of move those apart. Um, effectively, this helps to build the model without the bias from the ground up, rather than trying to direct traffic in an AI model that already has bias in it. You know, Tom, we talked about uh, you know uh, organizations like GitHub and stuff like that being more conscious with the language they're using. Um, uh, certainly, when it comes to to race and and kind of you know the the uh, you know historic systems of oppression and stuff like that, which I think is a really important conversation to have. Um, this has kind of been an ongoing conversation in AI. You know, kind of if you have bad data sets or biased data sets, you're going to end up with biased results. Um, a lot of a lot of techno babble there. Not going to lie, but um, definitely interesting work to see if we can you know kind of train those models with, uh, I guess, less biased data overall. Well, here's. This is a thorny subject. They all are. Mm -hmm. And and I know that we got on our soapbox a couple of weeks ago about the whole relationship with the master branches and, and Git and stuff like that. But let's take a step back here with this AI problem. And let's think about this cognitively for a minute. AI models take data, build an algorithm, and then produce results based on data sets, right? That's basically what they do. We've talked at length about this, and I actually just got done writing a post for Aruba about this because they're they're getting heavily into, into AI, and they're talking about the data is more important than the algorithm, which is true. The algorithm is a hypothesis. The data is the data. So what they're basically doing is they're training their hypothesis to ignore parts of the data. Now, before you start burning down the comments section, I want you to stop and think about something. If the data supports that bias exists, should you change your algorithm to eliminate said bias? I don't have a good answer. Truthfully, I'd like there to be no bias at all. I would like everyone to be treated equally. I would like everyone to have a fair shot. And I would like there to be no implicit systemic bias in the whole thing. But going so far as to change the data to support that is problematic. 
because it becomes an out of sight, out of mind thing. And I want you to rewind your clocks back to 1949 with, uh, with an Orwell novel. What happens when we just pretend that nothing exists? So I would, uh, two things here. One interesting note from the researchers themselves that says this doesn't eliminate the bias and that the bigger, the biggest component of this is the sociolinguistic background, like background that language exists in. If that contains, you know, gendered language, it inevitably will at some point creep into any kind of model. Like this isn't something that they can completely remove any idea of, of gender or anything like from that data set. But in, in my mind, it is more akin to, I guess, what is the... What is the intent of the algorithm, right? That this model is being used to train on. Like if you're if you're looking for something that you're going to claim is uh, unbiased uh, when it comes, like some of this comes down to, um, uh, like if if you're training an AI for reading comprehension or something like that, and you can do that in a way that isn't going to uh, replicate uh, as gendered as language. If like that's your intent, then this is a good way to do that, right? If it is to sound like I don't know, like sound like, uh, uh, again, it it all comes down to intent. And to me, it it is kind of like weighing survey responses, right? It's realizing that the data you are getting in maybe isn't uh, uh, represent, you know, you are not able to get either a representative or an ideal um, kind of data set. And so you're applying some kind of weights and, uh, and pressures to that so that it can actually, because that's the, that's the function that you want. uh, You can do that. So, and, and just, for the sake of argument, Salesforce is at least acknowledging that there's an issue and they need to take a look at it. And that's usually the first step. And that's actually one of the biggest problems we've had for years is get at, le- at least getting people to admit there's a problem that we need to look at. So bravo to Salesforce for doing that. But that doesn't mean that acknowledging that there's a problem means that it goes away. It's not like the check engine light on your car. Oh, hey, it's on. I'll just keep driving until it goes off. This is something that needs to be investigated. It needs to be um, researched and there needs to actually be an outcome. And if the outcome is, yes, there's problems and we need to work on that from a you know perspective of a society or something like that, way to go. That, that At least you're acknowledging where the issue is. But if it's, oh, well, we'll just tweak these three settings and the problem goes away. I I typically, I get really nervous about the wave of magic wand solutions because that tends to create more problems down the road. Yeah. And I, I, and just coming to the final word on this is I completely agree with you that like acknowledging it and actually fixing a solution are two totally uh, different things. I think it's an excellent point to, to kind of bring up. And, but on the, uh, and to the other side of that, um, once we have uh, kind of identified it, I, I do think it's important that as we increasingly trust these algorithms, you know, to kind of uh, to kind of, you know, be black boxes that we can put stuff in and, you know, and get, you know, magic results and stuff out that we do have to start thinking about, um, you know, how how we as as imperfect beings um, are kind of, uh, uh, you know, that these are a reflection of, of us. They're a reflection of the people that create them. Um, and so being conscious of that, and again, I don't think the researchers are saying like, this is the best way to do it. This is the only way to do it. Um, just kind of disentangling, um, you know, kind of uh, the the semantics and the rela- and then the relationship of words that they have with gender and kind of being able to tease them apart, I think is an interesting concept for AI. Yeah. All right. Well, that just about does it for the Gestalt IT Rundown. Uh, we're here every Wednesday at 1230 p.m. Eastern Time uh, talking about the IT News of the Week. Exciting stuff. Um, and Tom, you're all about uh, Gestalt IT. Uh, where can people find and what, what kind of stuff do you have coming out and uh, where can people find more of your great stuff? 
Well, I just published a conversation last week about edge computing. I got another one coming up pretty soon, uh, probably next week or the week after. Uh, we'll, uh, it's going to be a security-related topic. I think we're going to do end-to-end encryption. Uh, I've got some other great topics coming out, including an interview that I did with uh, with one of the founders of Viptela during uh, Cisco Live. So that should be up. Uh, I'm hoping tomorrow uh, if I can if I can get all the writing done. Um, but other than that, I think the biggest thing I want to tell everyone out there is if, uh, you know, one of the things that we always try to do here on the rundown is we have a lot of stories related to AI. Um, if you're a fan of that, you're going to want to stay tuned because Tech Field Day is going to have an AI field day coming up later this year in November. Um, head over to the website, gestalta, or sorry, techfieldday.com. Uh, look for AI field day and you can get a heads up about all the great information that will be coming along your way later in the year. Look at all this synergy, Tom, that we have. It's not just the colors of our polo shirts. It's the content of the show itself. Uh, and you can also check out Checksum. I just did a video uh, kind of diving deeper into the whole uh, uh, possible spinoff of VMware by Dell uh, that published this week. And then I'm going to be working on one uh, later today, in fact. Uh, I'll be working on it, not publishing it. <laughs> that will be all about kind of the history of working from home and maybe some of the lessons we can learn from that. So check those out, uh, youtube.com slash gestalt IT video, probably where you're watching this now. Uh, like I said, we'll be back next week at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time talking about the IT news of the week. Until then, for myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for all of us here in the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.